Well, the Senate voted today to advance a marriage equality bill that protects same-sex and interracial marriage under federal law. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. The vote was 62 to 37, with 12 Republicans joining every Senate Democrat. This clears the way for a historic vote later this week to pass what's called the Respect for Marriage Act, which had previously been approved in the House. The Supreme Court ruling in Oberfell opened the door to marriage equality nationwide. But as the blow to Roe v. Wade concretely demonstrated, court rulings are vulnerable. That's why there's been such a push to enshrine marriage equality in federal law. And this week, Interfaith Alliance, in coalition with a number of faith-based groups, brought religious leaders from across the country to Washington in support of the Respect for Marriage Act. As we celebrate the passage of this historic act just days ago, I want to look at how this movement came to be and the critical issues facing us next with the National LGBTQ Task Force Faith Works Director, Reverend Nicole Garcia. The pain and impact of the September 11 terrorist attacks reached far beyond the initial tragedy. In the days and weeks following, hate and violence against ethnic and religious communities shattered lives across the country. To recognize all the hate crime victims of 9-11, House Resolution 662 is currently under review by the House Judiciary and Oversight Committee. The goal of House Resolution 662 is straightforward, and I'm going to quote it here. Honoring the victims resulting from hate crimes, Islamophobia, and anti-immigrant sentiment in the aftermath of September 11, 2001, where individuals were targeted by violence and hatred because they were Muslims or perceived to be Muslims. The Muslim Public Affairs Council, MPAC, has been working hard on this resolution, introduced by Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson of Texas. And we'll get a briefing from Muhammad Ali, Director of Policy and Government Relations at MPAC. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders in the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Mohammed Hur Ali is Director of Policy and Government Relations at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. This week, MPAC hosted a briefing on House Resolution 662 on Capitol Hill, and I'm happy he's with me in the studio today. Mohammed, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, allowing me, and it's an absolute honor. Well, we are so pleased uh, to be in partnership with you on this. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, just introducing for people who haven't heard about the resolution, uh, what is the resolution? Quite simply, it's to honor the lives of those who um, were killed in the aftermath of 9-11. Obviously, we know what happened there. Muslim Americans, American Muslims were on the ground there. They were killed in Manhattan, you know, vendors all the way up to those who were in the buildings. But in the days after that, there was also, you know, I guess you could call them vigilantes or those kind of trying to seek justice, taking that into their own hands. And they went out and murdered Muslims and those who they perceived to be Muslims based on the way they looked. Um, You know, later on today, we're hosting an event on Capitol Hill, like you mentioned. And that event is going to include somebody who was uh, not killed, but he was shot in the face. Um, And he was one of the main reasons why this legislation was actually introduced. Um, We're also going to have a conversation with a widower whose husband was uh, murdered as a result of these attacks. So, it, you know, not only were American Muslims killed in, in, on 9-11 in New York, in, in Washington, um, you know, they were also killed in the days following. And yeah. it's, it's like tragedy upon tragedy. And, and this kind of this, 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 this um, violence that was lashed out against innocent people. Uh, and, and as you say, this is 
against Muslims and also those who were perceived to be Muslims. So this is this is, you know, recognizing Islamophobia, recognizing anti-Muslim hate, but it's also recognizing that the people who were affected, it spans a wide range of people, including, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hindus and Sikhs. This is this is really, these are all Americans who were targeted just for the way they look and the way they were perceived. Am I right? And uh, I mean, Absolutely. It was just because of the perception that they were either American Muslims or uh, the way that they looked as if they were American Muslims. Um, infamously, a gentleman who was wearing the traditional garb for uh, what, what Sikh Americans wear just because the, uh, the perpetrator of the attack assumed that he was an American Muslim, uh, he was murdered. Yeah. And, and that kind of discrimination wasn't, you know, it continues to this day. Um, and, and it's tragic to see that kind of unraveling of the moral fiber of our society, of the foundational infrastructure of why we were created as a nation so many hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I, I think that that's I, – I, I think one of the – you know, I, I have the honor of being um, part of this effort on the Hill and moderating a panel. And one of the things I'm really interested in in hearing is like what it has meant not to have this suffering recognized – really, you know, ignored by the American government when these are Americans who were who were attacked. I mean, it seems like what do you think it would mean to the families, uh, friends, um, those who hold these people in their memory? What would it mean for the United States to say a resolution in condemning that violence? There's really it's not about money. It's not about anything. It's just about recognition and healing. And the healing process can't begin without basic recognition. If we're not acknowledging that people were harmed, they were killed, some were maimed, like um, the gentleman who will be speaking at the event on Capitol Hill later today, how can you go uh, towards healing? And how can you go towards attacking or reversing some of the issues that led to those attacks and building a stronger, um, stronger society that allows for not coexistence, but allows for us all to get along and build up a better nation that we all strive to do. Right. So healing is the beginning. Recognition is, is is what's required for any of the steps to go forward. Right. And tell me a little bit about MPAC and what, you know, the the origins of it and, and a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit more about how you come to this work personally. So I am an American Muslim, and I uh, moved to Washington, D.C. after college in early 2010, and I got an internship on uh, Capitol Hill on the Senate side. And, um, and you know, I, I didn't come out here with a specific agenda. It was more so the recession was uh, where it was. Jobs were limited, and I got this incredible opportunity. And in the first couple of years, I was able, or the first year, I was able to get to a position where I was, um, you know, participating or helping advise the U.S. senator that I was working for and ended up staying for about six years. And uh, my uh, portfolio is mostly national security and foreign policy. And in the years following, for about the last six, I've been also kind of in the government relations and nonprofit profit space and uh, joined the Muslim Public Affairs Council late summer of last year. And one of the things that really drew me to uh, MPAC was the solutions-based way that we are trying to promote the right policy. It's not just sitting back and saying this is bad or that's bad. It's actually getting into the weeds of how policy is created, going to those who are you know, who are who are in charge of how policy is being either created or implemented, you know, from Capitol Hill to the administration and working with our partners, both in the interfaith community and in civil society. Um, our president, we're based in Los Angeles and our president and co-founder, Salam al-Mariyadi, frequently works with other, uh, works, works with his colleagues and his partners in um, interfaith alliances, whether it's with uh, Christians or members of the Jewish community. Um, you know, after the most recent attack on a synagogue, he was right there working with, yeah. uh, working for the healing process that we talked about. Absolutely. I think that that's what's, you know, I, has impressed me so much about MPAC over the years is that this is, and any, frankly, any group that really cares about their own community recognizes that you can't just care about your own community. It's it's wider. So that when when you see anti-Jewish hate or anti-Sikh hate, it it it's not it, it's it's not completely divorced from anti-Muslim hate. The, you know, and and we we need to recognize that we we can come together. We can recognize one another's uh, challenges and uh, adversities and show up for one another. And I think that that's that's one of the reasons Interfaith Alliance is so glad to show up with be one of the signers of this resolution in support of this resolution. And also and also to um, recognize that 
listen, no faith community in America should be um, should feel complacent when others are being attacked. And so we all need to show up for one another. And I see that Impact is is doing that so beautifully. Absolutely. And it's almost as if we should take a page out of NATO's book and attack on one is an attack on all. Oh. You know, okay. whether it was the synagogue in, in Texas or whether it is combining and, and joining when, when, you know, American Muslims are doing an Eid prayer is that we are together in times of grief, in times of mourning and in times of happiness and joy. Um, and then it's also important to kind of learn from one another. It doesn't have to be in these uniquely momentous occasions. One of my colleagues in the Los Angeles office, um, you know, she runs what our, our program called uh, the Mustard Seed Project. And there we bring together American Muslims with evangelical Christians. Now, you might think historically those two groups are not going to sit in the same room and have fruitful conversations. But this has proven that it is exactly possible. It, this is possible. Oh, completely. I mean, you know, and the, and and shows like, oh, you're human. You know, what I mean, this yes. is like what it comes down to. And and for for more for you know, sometimes in my own history, when I worked at Princeton, sometimes you know, even if if people are more religious. They actually really like being with other people who are actually religious, right. you know, and, and find, oh, you take your faith really seriously. That's interesting. And other people find other ways of connecting. But the idea that we can't talk to, go- to one another, the idea that there's like us and them is just like it, it just seems to me like it's a dead end. Yeah. And it also is absolutely not the, the way we're going to achieve our country as, as, as James Baldwin uh, described it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that having faith in, in a higher power really brings people together. And if we're able to get back, uh, get away from, you know, what one might call cosmetic differences, uh-huh. we're going to be able to build that network of what we all believe to be, you know, at least in the work that I do, policies, um, you know, get to policy goals that are really going to help all Americans, regardless of faith, regardless of, you know, the way they pray, if they pray, regardless of their religion, regardless of socioeconomic class. I mean, some of the basic, um, you know, ideas espoused in terms of helping those who can't help themselves, or as people frequently talk about, you know, you got to pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Well, you got to be able to reach your bootstraps to be able to come up and pull yourself (laughs) up. And Right. You need to have boots in order to have bootstraps. So also like, you know, the Constitution and the promises of this country are for everyone. And uh, and so I think that's the reason, like, I feel as a Christian, I need to show up for this resolution um, and say, like, um, you know, the the fact that the United States has not acknowledged this suffering and this violence mm-hmm. is is a is an absolute oversight and it can be changed. And this is something doable and we should do it now because I'm I'm curious, you know, how does this relate to. Where we are as 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 far as a nation and Congress, you must you know you're in D.C. You know you just had the midterms. Like I'm curious how you feel both this bill and other bills that you might be advancing. How do you feel? What are you feeling these days? Well, I mean, I think that going we're about what a month and a half away from the two year anniversary of what happened on January sixth, and you know what was just on a personal note, what was so saddening and so. Truly saddening was I remember when I was an intern going back so many years is I used to give tours in exactly those places that were then stormed, taken down. But, you know, we talk about healing and we talk about before healing comes acknowledgement. There needs to be a stronger acknowledgement of who these people are. I mean, they're white supremacists. The administration, both Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, ODNI, these institutions have declared that white supremacists are the greatest threat that we face. One of the ways that those behind some of these movements are disseminating that um, hate is, you know, on social media through what is known as the great replacement theory. Right. One of the ways that we are trying to move in a, you know, the right direction in terms of ensuring that we are all safe as, as Americans is what we have developed as a counter narrative to that. Talking about how it isn't as if, um, you know, the, fo- the folks that they are espousing are being replaced when instead we are a pluralistic society that has been thriving. And one of the ways that we have been thriving is through expanding uh, the pie, allowing for stronger economic growth, allowing for, um, you know, developing a, you know, mosaic that is richer, deeper, and provides value to all of those, yeah. regardless of background. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I, I was on your website. I think you're calling it the great enrichment. Correct. I think th- I thought that was, a, you know, messaging matters. Absolutely. Like we forget how, you know, we have good ideas and then we like, you know, ramble like I'm rambling for, for a paragraph after paragraph. And the great enrichment 
is such a good way to describe this. It's absolutely true. Our country is made better and better by the more people who are in it and contribute to the the richness of our the fiber of our society. I think impact. By the way, let's just uh, impact.org. Uh, is that the way people can get to your website? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, uh, go to the website. Look at all the cool things that Impact is doing because you guys are really like so valuable and have been such good partners. I will say to Interfaith Alliance over the years, like this, you know, you show up um, and you show up for things that are again like not just you know for for Muslims alone, but actually that you recognize that this is something that will benefit everyone. And we just you know, I, I, all of us need to take a page out of that book. I think it's just so incredible. You know, we we have been talking like one of our big. The focuses over the last um, kind of six months has been what we're calling Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. which is not disconnected with white nationalism, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is that at January 6th, people were, were waving Christian iconography and right. Christian symbolism, which to me as a, as a Christian as a, is just so terrible and blasphemous. So I'm, I'm wondering how you, as a, as a Muslim and as a religious minority in this country, you know, see the, the conversation about Christian nationalism evolving. I think that the first part that, um, you know, it's again, it goes back to acknowledgement. Um, we have to, um, like we were talking about the acknowledgement of, uh, of what happened in the days following 9-11, there needs to be an acknowledgement of where some of these um, you know, the the areas of which the hatred is being disseminated when it came to um, what happened on January 6th and continues to evolve through the Great Replacement Theory. Um, you know, one of the things that we specifically say in our counter-narrative, um, you know, the, greatest, uh, the Great Enrichment Theory, is that the U.S. government, specifically those in the intel community and the law enforcement groups, they need to be able to consider that these Christian nationalists, white supremacists, they have to be able to mark them as um, you know, threat as transnational threats, and then right. deal with them accordingly. That's right. It doesn't matter what faith you um, purportedly follow. If you are indulging in some of these extreme views, you can't be. It can't be sort of this double standard between because you follow this faith, you're going to be categorized in this in, right. in this bucket. If right. you follow this one, you're in this bucket. Right. You know, a threat is a threat is a threat. Terrorism is terrorism. I, I mean, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, this is like what was happening there was terrorism. People were attacking the, our greatest institution, mm-hmm. the Capitol. Right. I, I mean, it, it is astounding to me that a certain someone up, announced yesterday. Right. And, and after we have learned all we have learned mm-hmm. about that certain someone's role in January 6th, encouraging people to attack our democracy. I, I just like, you know, sorry, I'm like having a little moment here. This is not an, a partisan moment. This is an American moment. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that we actually, um, you know, ask from members of Congress and those in leadership in both parties. This is not a partisan issue. No. You Democrats, Republicans and every policymaker of all stripes, shape, background, whatever it might be, should be able to come out and say forcefully that these ideas are bad. They're bad for you. They're bad for me. They're bad for us. And they are in di- they're diametrically opposed to the foundational structure of, of the United States of America. Totally. To the, you know, the, the experiment that was, uh, you know, that is democracy. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely. I mean, thank you for saying that. I want to just make sure that we have a chance again to talk about the resolutions and what people can do, because, uh, you know, the I would love for the listeners of this program to feel like they imp- are empowered to uh, to write, to call their their representative and say this. So what is the exact act? Is it, right now it's in the it's in committee, right? It's Correct. In, yeah. It was referred to two committees, uh, House Judiciary and House Oversight. Um, the next step would be to call the chairman of both and um, ask for it to come up for a committee vote. Uh, sometimes that's, that may not be possible given the time constraints we're going to go into where well, we are already in lame duck. Yep. Um, and then ask your member of Congress to say this is something that's important. This right. is why it's important. Right. Listen and come and attend um, You know, in person if you're able to. We're going to be, I believe, in Rayburn shortly. Um, and if you're not, uh, join us um, You know, virtually and listen to the stories. Honestly, let that be your North Star on how you decide whether or not you want to join and, and, and help this resolution pass. Yeah. And if you are interested, 
I, I promise you, listen to the powerful testimony you're going to hear in just a couple of hours. If you're not able to be moved by that, then I think a little bit of self-evaluation might be necessary. <laughs> but the next step is reach out to your member of Congress. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to those around you. Talk to, if, you know, if you're a part of the faith-based community, talk to those who are of you know similar uh, background or those who are just overall in the faith-based community. Yeah. It's, so a, re- a recording of this event, could people find that on your website? We're going to be able to post both the recording as well as the live stream. Uh, oh, the okay. Event. People are going to be able to hear the recording of this event if they go to mpac.org, M-P-A-C.org. Yes. This is, we're in D.C., and so I'm going to get all D.C., even though I'm, I live in New York. So sure. I, but, but when I'm in D.C., I want to get all into politics. What do you imagine – other initiatives, uh, I love mustard seed. I, I love the, um, the the great enrichment. Is there anything else that, that you all are, are doing that uh, our listeners should know about? Well, one of the things that we are, um, you know, the, the countering white supremacy and domestic terrorism is something that we've been working on for years now when it comes to a report um, about what it is white, what, what is white supremacy to a report that we have produced on domestic terrorism versus or the way that domestic terrorism is treated versus um, foreign terrorism and how there's a discrepancy which leads to bad outcomes. Um, but we're also getting to the, the essence of the issue through the great replacement theory and our counter narrative, uh, the great enrichment theory. But going even forward, this is an assault on our democracy, which is why this year we had what's called the Our Sacred Honor campaign. We had members of Congress attend. We had, um, you know, uh, leaders in civil society. Um, we had uh, to, uh, they attended a number of events that we hosted around the country in Washington, D.C., in Atlanta, in Chicago, um, and had a conversation about where, what is the status of our democracy? Is this something that is getting better or is there an erosion of our democracy? Mm-hmm. And if so, why? And what is it that we can do better? What did you learn? Uh, we learned that indeed there is an erosion, but there is a desire to make it better. There is a desire to get back to a place where there isn't a feeling of it being under threat, but we need to do so with specificity. It's, it's happening on social media. One of the things that we're going to be working on going into the next year is how and if social media companies, major social media companies, should re- be required to moderate some kind of content that is being placed or, or, or put on their platform. Should you be able to espouse some of these just hateful ideologies, the, the hateful rhetoric, and yeah. not be flagged as as hate speech? Yeah, it is a timely conversation, especially given the um, dumpster fire that is Twitter these days. Talk about erosion. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, like a shameful erosion. Not just for the Muslim community. This is this is for uh, the black community, for Jews. I'm saying, oh, I'm a free speech absolutist, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, yeah, people can say any. No, we can't. You know, this is a responsible society. Yeah, you can't shout fire in the movie theater. Exactly, you can't uh, provoke. Hatred, we've seen the result of it. We've seen how it works. You know, I've been on the Internet, like, since the 90s. Religion in the Internet has been my thing. And I just feel like that does not mean you leave your responsibilities at the door mm-hmm. and our responsibilities to our neighbors and, and to, you know, uh, I just think it's, like, absolutely terrible what's happening to Twitter and going exactly in the wrong direction. Yeah, and even preceding what just most recently happened, it's something that we have been actively following and trying to figure out, work with all those who are, you know, in the space. It's not just following one lane that might be exactly what we want them to be saying, that we are kind of like siloed in that uh, in that category in terms of like, we don't want it to become an echo chamber. We want it to be able to evaluate all sides of the debate and come up with our own strategy yeah. and how to proceed forward. And that's something that we, we like to we like to do across the board. We have this uh, program called the Congressional Leaders uh, Development Program where we bring um, American Muslim students from all over the country and we help them get internships on Capitol Hill. But it's a bipartisan, nonpartisan program. We want them to get the, con- the, the experience of knowing what it's like to be um, in, the, in, in the world of policymaking. But it's not just on the policy side. We also have a program similar to that in uh, Los Angeles where we're trying to bring um, American Muslims and put them in the, uh, where, uh, you know, the screenwriter's rooms. Oh, yeah. We are trying to share with yeah. that side of what seems like a different world, but it is only three time zones away, and, and make sure that um, <laughs> those who are working in that space, um, Sue Abedi, who is the head of our policy, our, our, our Hollywood Bureau, is leading those efforts. I love it. Um, you I had mentioned, um, you know, we, one of the things that we um, really kind of focus our work to just kind of at the very top of our, um, you know, counter narrative is talking about how what happened in Buffalo when 10 uh, African Americans were killed 
in his in the shooter's manifesto and the shooter's kind of like you know what he had uh, housed in his home it talked about the great replacement theory and the desire for non-whites and specifically black Americans that they were trying to be that they were going to replace those um who were of his uh you know religious and and, and social background you know, as we are working, we have an African-American Insight Council that is kind of working with MPAC also in Los Angeles. And we, we want to hear from as many people as, as, as often as we can to develop the right solutions to, you know, make us, make America a better, um, more, you know, rich country and yeah. rich being in every sense of the word. Yeah, well, and that's the, I think, looking at all the different ways. This is not like, you can't just create laws and not ex- work, work on culture. And mm-hmm. so all of these ways are great. Um we just this is this is fascinating work. I'm excited to be working alongside you. Honored that Interfaith Alliance is uh, working alongside MPAC and so many other groups. Muhammad Hur Ali is director of policy and government relations at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. This week, MPAC hosted a briefing on House Resolution 662 on Capitol Hill. Muhammad, thank you for coming in and taking the time with State of Belief Radio today. Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. Lots more still ahead on this week's show. Up next, Reverend Nicole Garcia, Faith Works Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You can also find links to topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. The Reverend Nicole Garcia is FaithWorks Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. She's in Washington, along with many other faith leaders, to urge the Senate to pass the Respect for Marriage Act. Interfaith Alliance and its partners have been working nonstop for this important legislation, and I am so happy to welcome Reverend Garcia today. Welcome. Thank you so much. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, you know what? It's it's kind of amazing that we have to be here, isn't it? We're in a moment in our country where some of the rights that we are beginning to be comfortable with and enjoy as people <laughs> um, are, are all of a sudden at risk because of an activist Supreme Court, which we've already seen. And so so we need to actually take this moment with this Senate and say, no, 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 we're not going back. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how you see specifically this bill working in American legal uh, reality, as well as just an American's men- mindset and spirit. Well, what this bill really does is not increase or change what is happening right at this moment, but rather taking action by Congress to ensure that individuals who can legally marry will have those marriages recognized throughout the country. You know, before 2015, that wasn't the case. Um, for example, I had dear friends who were married in San Francisco in 2008. There was a short period of, of time when California was issuing marriage license to same-sex couples, and they got married, and then they left California and went home, and they weren't sure if their marriage was legal in the state where they resided. Now, what the 2015 decision did in Obergefell was to ensure that all Legal marriages are legal throughout the country. It's not telling anybody you have to perform marriages. It's not telling anybody you have to do anything. It's just basically ensuring the rights that we have at this very moment are maintained. Absolutely. And as I learned more about this bill, I didn't realize that DOMA was still on the books. And, you know, I mean, this is actually rectifying a wrong, in fact, also, like, we're not getting out in front of anyone. This is actually no. really now, it is consensus opinion. And as you know better than anyone, this is consensus opinion with almost every religious group in America. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Like, th- we are not getting out in front of our skis or asking senators to do anything radical. We're just asking for things to be acknowledged in the reality that they are. 
Correct. This has wide bipartisan support. It passed the House a while ago, and it's been waiting in the Senate. And with all the Senate rules, we had to make sure that we had 60 senators who would vote to bring this bill to the floor. And it looks like that will happen very, very soon. I'll just interject. Hopefully, by the time you're hearing this broadcast, we have we have won this. But really, it's religious groups are pretty much unanimous. There are a few outliers, but religious groups are pretty unanimous on this. Yes, we have to recognize that individuals have the right and freedom to love who they love. We can't dictate who the heart desires. And you happen to love someone of uh, the same sex, your love should be recognized throughout the country. I have dear friends who are gay and lesbian who are raising kids who have been together for 20, 30, 40 years, who uh, have built lives together. And and the great fear is, what if a Obergefell were overturned and someone is driving across country and they get into a car accident and the person that you've been married to for 25 years, you're not able to make medical decisions because the state you happen to be in doesn't recognize your marriage? That would be devastating. It's just, just devastating. you know, this, devastating. And, and you know, uh, as as many people know, listening to this broadcast, that describes my family. I mean, I, we've been, my my husband and I have been together for twenty years. We have two kids, and the idea that all of a sudden our marriage could be dissolved or not recognized is just you know it's what, just I just ask anyone who's on the fence about this. Imagine that situation for your family, uh, and and how how terrible that would be. I it seems even more like wild to have to mention that this also talks about interracial marriage because, yes. and, and, and for, for those who, you know, for those who are, are I think are younger um, there, you may not be aware of the incredible controversy that interracial marriage caused in this country. It was illegal in many places. Uh, and uh, unfortunately it was many of the objections were coming from Christians Who's, you know, who yes. were quoting the Bible, you know, it's all very recognizable. And, uh, and so just talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, why that's included in this bill and the importance of that as well, because there are interracial couples for whom this is not like distant memory. In the 1960s, 95% of Americans disapproved of interracial marriage. You know, I mean, like, you know, this mm-hmm. is like recent history. This I'm not talking about 1800s yes. here. I'm talking about 20th yes. century, late 20th century. So talk to me a little bit about how, you know, the advantage of this being inclusive, an inclusive bill. Well, this is all coming about because of a statement by, made by one of the conservative justices on the court and their, I believe, concurring opinion um, from the Dobbs case and that all the opinions uh, that have been made and um, the Loving case, Obergefell, they were all mentioned. Um, And so we we just cannot rely on the courts anymore to grant us the rights that we have worked so hard to obtain. We can't let those those rights slip through our fingers. So this bill simply codifies the fact that marriage should be recognized, marriage between two people, no matter of their gender or their race or their ethnicity, they're valid throughout the United States. And right. the Congress, right. Congress cannot dictate to states who they can marry and can't marry. So we're not telling right. anybody who you have to marry. It's just the fact that if someone has a valid marriage license from one of the 50 states or the territories, my understanding is, then that right. marriage is valid. Right. Talk to me a little bit. You, your, your portfolio is at, at, the, at the task force is faith. Tell me yes. about how, how you feel faith, religion, spirituality fits into the wider um, uh, goals, ambitions of the task force. And specifically, when we're talking about this bill, like, why is faith such an important part of, of the conversation when we're talking about a marriage equality? I have to go back and, and really first recognize and apologize for the fact that there are parts of the, I'll call it conservative church, that actively tell people who are LGBTQ that they are not worthy of God's love. 
that they are not welcome in God's kingdom, that they are inherently sinful. And I am a transgender Latina. I was raised in a conservative uh, family, Christian family. Um, but when I, in my 40s, came to the terms of the fact that I am transgender, I've always been a, a woman, and I'm a person of deep, deep personal faith, a faith that my mother instilled in my heart, a faith that um, keeps me afloat in this very, very difficult world. So personally, I'm devoted heart, mind, and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I am also Latina, born on December 12th, the feast day of La Virgen de Guadalupe. So I'm devotedly, um, I'm devoted to La Virgen de Guadalupe and the mother of God. So for me, it became a matter of bringing together my trans identity and my faith. And I want to give other people that opportunity. There's so many times I walked into LGBTQ uh, spaces wearing a clerical collar and people will come up to me and say, I used to be. I used to be Methodist. I used to be Lutheran. I used to be Catholic. But they, but they invited me to leave or were even more harsh. They told me to leave because I was no longer welcome. Well, there are places where you can be gay and Christian, lesbian and Christian, or you can be gay and Muslim, and you can be gay and Buddhist. I truly believe in a, an infinite God with infinite love. And to me, God speaks through Jesus and La Virgen. But to other people, God may speak to, uh, speak to them in other ways. And who am I to limit the love of God that someone cannot commune with God through Buddha or Muhammad yeah. Um, but as a practicing and a Lutheran pastor, this is where I start. This is my foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and well, I'm just, just so happy to say that my church, the ELCA, recognizes my ministry with uh, the task force as a call to ministry. That and is so, so this is, I mean, it's so wonderful. And, and, and I just think we have to just be really clear what you're doing is saving lives. Yes. Uh, and and you're also just making a clear claim. This is not religion versus LGBTQ people. This is recognizing that actually there most just because most Americans are religious, many LGBTQ people are religious of some faith yes. background or spiritual. And we are not going to put one group against another. It's just we're not we're not playing that game. And we're insisting no. that we're insisting to everyone that, like, we can come together. We can be together. And the fact that you exist, that I exist, does not mean that you can't exist. It just means that there's just going to be a little bit more room at the table. And that's fine. That's beautiful. And so so I, th I appreciate you. You, you know what you're doing and and how important faith is in the lives of people and in the in the fight for marriage equality because at in the in the at the at the you know base at the base level at the fundamental level it's about love it's about who Precisely. do you want to spend time with it's about who do you want to commit your life with um for better or for worse as anybody who's had a relationship but who do you want yeah. to commit with and so so it you know i just i appreciate that so much I want to um, I want to just take a, a little bit of time to to recognize what, while th this bill is extremely important and really, you know, will will be life saving. There there is so much work that we have to do and everyone has to do around trans rights in this country and trans rights to respect dignity and the right to exist and live without the threat of violence. And I just would love for you to talk a little bit more about that and specifically in the context of the Trans Day of Remembrance that is coming up on November 20th. Yes, this, um, I believe it's Sunday is Trans Day of Remembrance. And throughout the country, um, so many organizations, um, I, I'm part of an organization in my hometown of Boulder, Colorado, where we will recognize, hold a candlelight vigil um, to recognize over 300, I believe it's about 360 individuals who are transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming, who were murdered in this past year, almost 40 in the United States alone. Um, I did a faith-based remembrance service last Saturday in Boulder, and there were 37 people who were unknown. 
that their bodies were so badly beaten and burned that they could not be identified. That is horrific. And we're probably only talking about the tip of the iceberg because we don't, most law enforcement agencies don't collect gender identity. So we will know if someone is trans or non-binary if their family or friends come forward and let us know. So the numbers may be so much higher. And it is such an incredible crime. It breaks my heart that people who are just trying to live their authentic lives as God created them to be are brutally murdered for just being themselves. I mean, it is, you know, it is, it is... Well, I'm a Baptist preacher, so I can say it's sinful what, what is happening. The, the, the hate that people have in their heart, the violence that people are using with their hands, that is sin. Hating something that is different from you just because you, you, you haven't taken the time to get to know an individual and all that they represent. These, you know, and so when we, when we take time on Sunday for Trans Remembrance Day, a day of remembrance, sorry, uh, is, is to... Recognize these were, these were these were children of people, these were yes. parts of families. These were people who were loved in loving relationships. These were lives with hearts beating, and they're no longer here. And that is that is a tragedy, and it we need to recognize it, and we need to work to 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 stop it. And it's and frankly, I, unfortunately, this has become an issue. Among uh, among some of our uh, some Americans who have decided to target trans people for base mm-hmm. reasons of trying to instill fear and to get votes, and yes. I just think that's one of the most disgusting trends. You know, um, you know, I hate to call it a trend, but I see a trend line there where people are like, oh, maybe maybe like demeaning people can be a winning issue for us. Oh, it's it is disgusting, and you know. Um, we've heard of the don't say gay laws, the the attempts to make sure that transgender youth are not able to participate in sports, uh, passing these laws that are just so hateful uh, against people who cannot defend themselves. And the fear is instilled in parents. Um, and, and trans youth are just, they're, I should say, easy targets because we all love children. We want to protect our children. And so when they bring up that fear about, well, they, quote unquote, us um, trans people are trying to recruit your children and trying to turn them away from you or turn them away from God, um, that we are going to use them and abuse them. It's not true. It's just not true. I mean, this is this is, a you know, I think to to a lesser degree, the idea that anybody can be turned gay. You know, it's no. just is also like equally untrue. But, you know, I, I also really feel, you know, for the trans youth themselves and for their parents who almost always are trying to do they're trying to because they love their mm-hmm. child. They're trying to do what they think is right to care for their child and what the medical profession actually largely agrees is the right cure, uh, uh, care for a child. And then yes. and then there's other people who have no vested interest in that child. Who are who are kind of who come in and say, oh, well, you're doing it wrong. You, and and what happened to parents rights? You, it's all very good and well and good when it's in, mm-hmm. in support. But, you know, the inter, interrupting a family's attempt to care for their child. I mean, yes. I, I, you, you tell me, you know, much better than I do. But that is that feels just absolutely like the worst abuse. It really is the worst abuse. And, you know, I'm also uh, a licensed therapist in the state of Colorado, and I've worked with hundreds of trans people through the years. Um, and I follow the advice and uh, guidance of the World Professional Association, World Professional Association of Transgender Health, WPATH, and their standards of care. And they just came out with a new updated version, Standards 8. And you can't take a child in it's against medical advice to take a child in and say, well, go ahead and start them on hormones. I'll go ahead and no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. It's a no. long process right. that involves right. therapists and, and involves doctors and involves endocrinologists, a lot of specialists who love and care for this child. Nothing is going to be done with or for a child unless it is really deemed necessary. Yeah. 
Where, where can um, where can religious people learn more? I, 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 mm-hmm. Anybody, but really, like people who are coming from a faith angle, how can where how can those of us who want to learn more? Do you have a, a you know resources at uh, the task force that people can go to to learn more? As as a matter of fact, I have a website uh, called the Institute for Welcoming Resources. Um, now, when the task force uh, brought on a faith component. Um, we brought along with us a lot of the major Protestant denominations all have welcoming programs. The Lutherans, I'm a Lutheran, have reconciling works, more like Presbyterians, welcoming um, uh, ministries network, which are Methodist. We all came together and uh, we all provide resources for families, for people of faith. And you can go to the Institute of Welcoming Resources to the website that I oversee. And there are just a plethora of resources that is um, that are coming can out. The, the, can you give us the uh, the website address? It's, it's just called www.welcomingresources.org. I love it. That's easy to remember. Welcomingresources.org. That's a first step you can take um, that yes. we can all take in order to learn more. And it's fine. People, we we all have to learn. Like we all have to learn about about racism. We all have to learn about classism. We all have to learn about like people from different backgrounds and, and immigration status. We no one has to be perfect. But I think, you know, I mean, we all we all learn. And that's the great thing is that this is a resource for all of us to learn um, and for us to all grow. And once we stop growing, we're not alive anymore. So let's keep growing. Let's keep learning. Thank you for all you do at the task force and in your just as a living witness to the power uh, and the, the grace of our world. We're so grateful to be in partnership with you in this work um, and and look forward to being to more fun projects that we can work on together. Fun. We can. I just want to. We can be joyful. You know, we we can be joyful while we do this work and we're going to be, we're going to insist on it. So Reverend Nicole Garcia is FaithWorks Director at the LGBT Task Force in partnership with Interfaith Alliance and a coalition of committed ally groups. We brought a diverse group of faith leaders from across the country to urge senators to vote for the Respect for Marriage Act. Nicole, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief Radio. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. And I just want to make sure that the people out there know that you have the right to call your senators, make your voice heard as well. Uh, let them know that you, you um, support the Respect for Marriage Act and support all the work that the Interfaith Alliance is doing, that we are doing at the task force. And I look forward to many years of, of um, working with you and the and Interfaith Alliance. Before we go, we recorded this conversation in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday morning, one day before Interfaith Alliance brought scores of faith leaders to visit U.S. Senators' office to urge passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. Recognizing this important moment, these leaders took time away from their own congregations and communities to stand with LGBTQ Americans as well as families formed across lines of race and significantly with the non-citizen spouses of some of these Americans. I want to take a minute to talk, actually, to our producer, Ray Kirstein, who is one of those people. Ray, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about your relationship and how important this moment could be for you and your partner. So, Paul, today we could return from Germany, where we've been living in exile for 10 years. Not that we couldn't do that earlier, but the reason we ended up moving to Germany was 10 years ago, before the repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act, we were in the kind of situation that we could end up in again if the Supreme Court, for example, nullifies national uh, federal marriage equality. And so for us, it was a matter of needing to move to a country where we could live without having to have a work permit for my, my now husband. And that's how we ended up in Germany. Because your husband is not a U.S. citizen, that's why this is so important. This is what this is about. It's about security for families. It's about making, uh, relieving the fear 
of having to be separated, the fear uh, that at any point the government could intervene in our relationships. And so I just want to recognize uh, you, Ray, for all your work on this show and also how significant this moment is for all of us who are working for equality for everyone across this country. So thank you for sharing your story and as another example of how important all this work that Interfaith Alliance, along with our partners across the country, are doing. I'm proud of the work Interfaith Alliance was able to do to help give a final push to the Respect for Marriage Act, and it was emotional to watch the Senate pass the act at the end of the week. This moment shows that we, as a nation, may have learned something from the Supreme Court's political nullification of Roe v. Wade. And I'm also proud that on the same week, Interfaith Alliance stood with a coalition of Muslim and other faith groups and partners to say with one voice that persons targeted for violence and even murder simply because they are or appear to be Muslim, they must be honored and remembered looking back and protected and defended going forward. We have great hope for H.R. 662, and it's another cause to reach out to your congressperson, your representative, and say that this is a priority for you, that we honor these victims. And I know we will be doing more of this kind of work to bring Americans of every faith background and no faith background together to make sure that nobody is left behind and we move forward as a nation. Interfaith Alliance will be there with partners and allies working for the common good, and you can be guaranteed that we will be talking about it on State of Belief. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you will consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for our special Thanksgiving show where I will be talking to one of the most spiritual, deep people I know, Rabbi Joshua Stanton. He's an amazing fellow. You're going to want to hear his wisdom. And we can all take a moment and breathe and be thankful for this world and for our life. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.